Now, on April 20th, 1913, Sir William Osler, the father of modern medicine, delivered a speech at Yale University. It was a simple message, and I'll give you the cliff notes here in four words. Live in daytight, daytight compartments. Live in daytight compartments. Now, Osler had just traveled the Atlantic Ocean on an ocean liner, and the captain of the ship had demonstrated to him how by pressing a single button, he could turn parts of the ship into watertight compartments. Leveraging that machinery as a metaphor, Osler likened each of us to an ocean liner on a long voyage. He said, touch a button and hear at every level of your life the iron doors shutting out the past, the dead yesterdays. Touch another and shut off with a metal curtain the future, the unborn tomorrows. And that's easier said than done. But if you can pull it off, if, if you can put it into practice, it is the solution to a thousand problems. Because a lot of us worry about what hasn't come yet. A lot of us are guilt-ridden for what has happened in the past. According to the psychologists Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert, the average person spends about uh, almost 47% of their time thinking about something other than what they're doing in the present moment. Think about it. When was the last time you were physically present but mentally absent? (laughs) Maybe it was while driving. I hope not too long. Maybe it was right here, right now, and you're like, oh, what am I going to do today? It's all sunny. Sometimes that happens. You kind of zone out, right? In those moments, we're living in the wrong time zone. We're depressed about maybe the past, or uh, we're worried about the future. We're just distracted. We're frustrated. We're overwhelmed by this, that, and the other thing. We're our, we are half present, half the time, which means we're half alive. <laughs> the only way to be fully alive is to be fully present. And the only way to be fully present is to live in daytight compartments. Shutting out the, the past, not letting it bother you, and don't worry about the future. Live in today. And this series of messages is all about pressing that button and unleashing the the power of 24 hours. Burying dead yesterdays can be as difficult as a graveside funeral. Imagining unborn tomorrows involves no less labor than childbirth. But if you want to win the day, there is no other way. And this, this is not just a good idea. It's actually really a God idea. If you look in Scripture, you read about it. Give us this day our daily bread. Take up your cross daily. This is the day that the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. His mercies are new every morning. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't worry about tomorrow. And here's the bottom line. Maybe you've heard this phrase before, but yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. And our job, though, is to win the day. And that's it. Win the day. What's going on here and win it. Psalm 90 records the prayer of Moses during the wilderness wanderings in which he prays that God would give his people success for their labors and joy for their sorrows. And at one point of his prayer, Moses prays, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, if you want every day to count, you have to count the days. And how do you do that? Well, you can try counting backwards. Um, there seem, there's this dark 
you probably wouldn't go to it, but maybe uh, might on this, uh, this web website. If you're curious, you can um, check out this website. It's called deathclock.com. <laughs> and if you want to count backwards, you sure can. <laughs> and basically what you do is you on the website, you enter your birthday along with body mass index, if you know that or not. If not, maybe you can go to uh, uh, Gallegos' and they'll let you know. But uh, it, it spits out your, your estimated day of death. Wow, okay, cool. So you can count backwards from there if you really want to do that kind of thing. But what does it mean to win the day? It's living like each day is the first day and the last day of your life. That's how you win the day. It's both an art and a science. <laughs> whatever your goal you're going after, whatever problem you're trying to solve, whatever, whatever habit you're trying to break or build, the secret to your success is that it's going to happen one day at a time. You have to win the day. Then you have to get up and do it all over again the next day. So you do this two days in a row, and it's called a winning streak. <laughs> and boy, how we need those winning streaks in these days of defeat. But here's what we're going to do over most of these summer Sundays through pretty much the end of July. We're going to unpack seven habits that will help you stress less and accomplish more. And these sound kind of funny, but this is what we're going to do, and we'll explain it each Sunday. But we're going to flip the script today. Then we're going to look at, we're going to kiss the wave. We're going to eat the frog. We're going to fly the kite. We're going to cut the rope. We're going to wind the clock, and then we're going to seed the clouds. And in those messages, we'll see what that means, and we'll unpack all of that each Sunday and what that is all about. But it all comes down to be able to win the day, different things that we need to put into practice to be able to do that. Now, let me plant a, a little seed of faith right here, right now. But you are capable of more than you can imagine. You are capable more than you can imagine. I know this because God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. So keep that in mind as we move through these days. But even that said, 75% of New Year's resolutions fail within the first month. And why? When you think in one-year timelines, it's overwhelming. i got to do this for this long? Or, wow, i got all these different things I want to do this year, and, and, and it's in a year's time. You, you think of all of it in one day. You get overwhelmed. You feel like quitting before you can even start. So here's the question, and we'll keep coming back to it during this preaching series. Pick a habit, any, any kind of habit, and ask yourself, can you do it for a day? Can you at least do it for a day? You have to take your, your life goals and reverse engineer them into daily habits. And here's the good news. The only ceiling on your intimacy with God and impact on the world is your is daily spiritual disciplines. When you come together with God, you meet with God every day, He's going to show up and extraordinary things are going to happen. And He'll guide you through your day. You may not know what's going to go on in your day. You may not know that you might trip over your dog in the middle of the night and cause yourself to be in a situation of a sling on the shoulder for a long time. You may not know what's, what that day will hold for you, but you can connect with God in the beginning of the day and be able to know that He is with you, and whatever happens, He's going to guide, He's going to provide, He's going to take you through that. And so when we connect with God in that way, extraordinary things are going to be happening. So, 
Grab your Bible, and if you want, there's a Bible in front of you there. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Just one verse. There's a lot of things surrounding it in there. So before we get there, let me go here and give you a little context and all. Now, Vladimir Lenin said this. He said, there are decades when nothing happens, and there are weeks when decades happen. You probably can understand that. Now, let me go further than that. I would say that there are days when decades happen. <laughs> Sometimes your days are just like, oh, my goodness, this happened? And I, I, I know this week was kind of like that <laughs> for me. Decades happened quite a bit here. But having said that, let me say this. You can't just flip the calendar and expect everything to change. You have to flip the script. This is the habit we'll talk about today, and, and here's the main point. Just in case, just in case you become one of those 47 percenters uh, that Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert talk about, zoning out, and you're here, but you're not here. Let me give this point to you right now. It's this. You know, though we may not like the story we have develop, developed throughout our lives, we might not enjoy that throughout our lives, what we've developed there, but God offers us a new story and identity. So here's the thing. If you want to change your life, start by changing your story. If you want to change your life, start by changing your story. Flip the script. In the science of cybernetics, there are two kinds of change. Apparently, there's the first order change, which is behavioral. It's doing something more or less. And if you're trying to lose weight, for example, eating less and exercising more are steps in the right direction. First order change can facilitate a quick fix, but second order change passes the test of time. Second order change is conceptual. It is mind over matter, and that's where the magic happens. Everything is created twice. The first creation is mental, it's internal. The second creation is physical, it's external. And everything was once a thought that includes you. You don't just bear God's image. You are his idea. <laughs> you are his workmanship. You are a unique expression of God's imagination. He created you inside and out. Special, different, unique, with all the different abilities that you have and all the different beauty marks and all the different scars. To see yourself as anything less, though, is to believe a lie. God created you. You are his workmanship. And there never has been and never will be anyone like you. And that's not a testament to you. <laughs> it's a testament to the God who created you. The significance is this. No one can worship God like you. No one can worship God for you. <laughs> no one can serve God like you or for you. You are unique in that way. You do that. When, when We tend to think of habits as external exercises that increase proficiency or productivity. It's, you know, practicing the scales on the piano. It's, it's practicing skills. Uh, those external habits will pay dividends, no, no doubt. I mean, Steph Curry hits three-pointers because he practices them quite a bit. But the, the biggest return on investment are the internal habits that no one sees. Those are kind of like the high-leverage habits. It's your internal monologue. What's going on in your, your, your mind? It's the way you explain your experiences to yourself. 
It's the stories you tell yourself day in and day out. On average, about 60,000 thoughts fire across our synapses every single day. 60,000 thoughts. And according to a study done by the Cleveland Clinic, 80% of those thoughts are negative. 80% of those thoughts are negative. <laughs> we got a problem. <laughs> and the problem is our stinking thinking. The Scripture tells us, as a man thinketh in his heart... So he is. Your thoughts have a psychological and physiological effect. Your thoughts have the power to lower your blood pressure, slow your pulse, and boost your immunity. Or do the exact opposite. <laughs> and of course, there's some external things that happen that cause you to do that. Influences around you. Maybe 10 negative phone messages in two days. The battle is won or lost in the mind. Either way, the stories you tell yourself are far more important than the situations you find yourself in. That's when and where and how we flip the script. So, with that, all that as a backdrop, let's look at Genesis 50, verse 20. It's towards the end of that book, it's the first book of the Bible. Let me set the scene here as you take a look at that verse. So, when Joseph was a teenager, he had a dream, a dream that his brothers would one day bow down to him. He makes the mistake of telling his brothers about this dream, and his brothers fake his death and sell him into slavery. So life goes from bad to worse. Joseph ends up in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And if anybody could have played the victim card, it would be Joseph. But this isn't the story Joseph narrates to himself. So long story short, really long story short, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh puts his signet ring on Joseph's finger and makes him second in command. Thirteen years after selling him into slavery, his brothers come knocking on his door, begging for food because of a famine in the land. In Genesis chapter 43, verse 28 says his brothers bow down before him. <laughs> I can only imagine what Joseph must have thought and what he must have felt. It's a day when decades happen. The vision he had at 17, the vision that went off the rails, the vision that took a wrong turn, the, that vision that, that seemed so far away, the vision that doesn't seem possible, that vision is fulfilled in this moment. This is the day, again, when decades happen. So, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, is like a time-lapse video. Joseph looks back on all the ups and downs, all the pain and suffering, all the twists and turns, and this is what he says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. May God give us a, a 50-20 vision <laughs> in many ways. But let me make this as simple as, as one, two, three here. If you want to flip the script, you have to get three things. First, you have to know your name. <laughs> Secondly, you have to fix your focus. And third, you have to change your story. Know your name, fix your focus, change your story. So, you got to know your name. More than a century ago, Charles Horton Cooley, founder of the American Sociological Association, said... <laughs> you have to listen to this. I might have to read it again. It would be not on the screen. You could see it. But I am not what I think I am, and I am not what you think I am. I am what, you, I, am what I think 
you think I am. <laughs> so let me read that again. Follow along closely. I am not what I think I am, and I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. <laughs> okay? All right. A little bit of a tongue twister. Mind bender as well, too. But I bet it sounds vaguely familiar. Cooley called it the, the looking glass self, and it's basing our sense of self on how we believe others see us. Our sense of self comes from lots of different sources. Sometimes it's as simple as someone saying, you're good at this, or you're not that great at that. You know, you maybe you should pursue these things. Either way, it's letting other people narrate your story. It's living your life according to their expectations. So it's critical for us to take our cues from Scripture. because it, it, the, the book of James likens the Bible to a mirror. And this is where we discover who we are in the eyes of God. And this is how we know our name. This is how we flip the script. So back into Joseph's story from Genesis a little bit more. After playing a few mind games with his brothers, <laughs> which I'm, I'm sure he could be totally justified for, Joseph finally reveals his identity. And in Genesis chapter 45, the third verse, he says, I am Joseph. I am Joseph. Now, we read right past this, but Joseph knows his name. And you say, yeah, well, of course he does. Hello, Pastor Jim. He knows his name. It's his name. But don't go too fast with that. Fun little fact, actually. When Pharaoh makes Joseph second in command, he doesn't just give him his signet ring, he gives him an Egyptian name, Zephanath Panea. Nice name. Probably another grand, grandson might be good with that, Zephanath. Maybe we should talk to uh, Zach and Amanda. But it would have been so easy for Joseph to forget who he was, if you allow it. Culture will name you or tame you. It will label you. It will define you. Social media will chew you up and spit you out if you allow it. You have to know who you are. You have to know whose you are. You need to know your name. You're blessed. You are chosen. You are blameless. You are adopted by the Heavenly Father. You are redeemed by Christ. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are stamped with the image of God. Simply put, you are who God says you are. If you want to flip the script, you need to know your name. Then you have to fix your focus. You have to fix your focus. There's a saying I've heard before, your focus determines your reality. Your focus determines your reality. You look at Philippians 4, your reality becomes biblical. Philippians 4, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And why? Because your focus will determine your reality. If you're looking for an excuse, you'll find one. You'll always find one. If you're looking for something to be grateful for, you'll find it. 
There's a concept in psychology called cognitive reappraisal. It's telling yourself a different story about what is happening. It, it can happen when you come up to a tragic, awful, horrific accident. And you're looking at that and you're going, no, he's not really dead. No, it, that's not really his blood. No, that's not really a mangled car with someone in it. And we change that narrative in our mind so it kind of protects us. And Joseph is a prime example of this, though, too. Joseph could have played the victim card in all this. As he looked at what was there, he, he also could have played God and even the score with his brothers, too. <laughs> but he doesn't do either of those things. And why? Because he's got a God's eye view. A God's eye view. The former president of the APA said that all of us have what he calls an expl explanatory style. He says, explanatory style is the manner in which you habitually explain to yourself why events happen. Why events happen. Someone passes away. Well, yeah, this is what probably happened. This is why. A lot of people want to, want to explain why. A lot of people want to, want, want to know why. And it's those explanations, not the experiences themselves, that make us or break us. And what's Joseph's explanatory style? It's Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but that, that, that isn't where I'm going to focus my energy. God intended it for good, saving of many lives, and that's where I'm going to focus my energy. There was a funny picture circulating around social media at the end of 2020. You probably have seen it, maybe come across it. Uh, it's basically called the 2020 dumpster fire. <laughs> Picture of a dumpster on fire, in front of it says 2020. <laughs> and dumpster fire basically is just, you know, everything going wrong, horribly wrong. And so that was the picture that kind of floated around online quite a bit. But, you know, I, I don't know if that's the correct explanation for 2020, actually. 2020 really wasn't a dumpster fire. I would suggest that it was a refiner's fire. And what comes out of the refiner's fire is always more pure, more precious, more valuable, because it's been refined by the touch of the master's hand. The prophet Malachi asked a question. He said, who is able to endure? Who is able to stand? He will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. So how do we fix our focus? Short answer is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Keep our focus on Him. Don't you just love the moment when Peter gets out of the boat in the middle of, of the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of the night? It takes a ton of faith to do that. It takes a lot of faith to do that. We can't walk on water, really, can we? Jesus says, come. And here's the deal. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. You can't stay in the boat if you want to walk on the water. And here's what happens. He gets out of the boat because he's focused on Jesus. And Jesus walks on water, so he's simply doing what he's seeing. And that's what following Jesus is all about, doing what he's doing. Then he loses focus. Peter loses focus. He starts focusing on the wind and the waves around him. And that's when he starts to, th to sink. 
And that's when we start to sink. So a couple easy applications right here can be applied to, to all this. I think one thing that can happen fairly easily is that you keep a gratitude journal. A gratitude journal. It's one of the simplest ways to fix your focus is to keep that kind of journal. And you know what? You don't need paper and pencil. If you're using you your phone a lot or anything like an electronic device or a computer, you can journal on that real fast. You go right to your notes or you go right to an empty page to be able to type in stuff, whatever you find. And that's probably, you got your phone mostly with you all the time. And so God brings to mind some gratefulness that you need, you need to express. Put it down right there on your phone. But it will sanctify all these things, your, 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 your reticular activating system. Big words, huh? It's the part of the brain that determines what we notice and what goes unnoticed. All those things that go on around us. We don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And all of this is to say your explanations are more important than your experiences. So keep a gratitude journal. Another thing you do about all this, too is that the change of pace and the change of place equals change of perspective. If you bring change of pace and a change of place together, it equals a change of perspective. The key to spiritual growth is routine. Get that. Try to develop a habit, right? Go into routine. But once the routine becomes routine, <laughs> you have to change the routine because <laughs> you get in a rut. Let's say you download a Bible reading plan through your you version, you know, the Bible app. And uh, each year you change translations. And why? Because uh, it, it, may, it makes those synapses fire in, in a little different ways. Maybe one year you do a national, international version, new international version. Maybe another year you do a King James version. Maybe another year you, you do a English Standard Version or, or um, American Standard Version. New American Standard Version, whatever. But there are lots of ways to put this into practice. You can do a silent retreat. You can, you can practice being quiet before God. And fasting... It's a fantastic way to flip the script to get your focus back on God. Uh, a third application, real quick about this, is read old books. <laughs> read old books, really. There used to be a bookstore on Powell Boulevard called Powell, not Powell Books. It was called uh, the Bible Bookstore or something like that. Old, old books that uh, uh, authors had made, and I found a lot of good ones over there, and then they closed. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, a lot of... Bible bookstores did that back in the day and went online. But I've heard it said, if you want new ideas, read old books. <laughs> want new ideas, read old books. And Phyllis is nodding her head quite a bit, being a librarian over there, said, yeah, there's a ton of books I can offer you. <laughs> and no book is older, no book is better than the Bible. It gives us a God's eye view. Scripture confronts the false identities and false narratives committed by the father of lies. It reveals the Heavenly Father's meta-narrative and, and the unique role that each one of us plays in it. Abraham thought he was too old. Jo Jeremiah thought he was too young. Moses thought he was unqualified. Joseph thought he was overqualified. Gideon had an inferiority complex. Jonah had a superiority complex. 
Peter made too many mistakes, Nathaniel was too cool for school, Paul had a thorn in his flesh, and King David was the runt of the litter. None of that matters. None of that matters. Who you are is not the issue. What really matters is whose you are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, and the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. You are the apple of God's eye. You are God's workmanship. You are more than a conqueror, and nothing can change that. It is what it is. It is who you are. And during times of crisis, we need to get a word from God. We need Scripture. We need Scripture as it's our plumb line. It's our anchor line. It's our lifeline. Which brings us then to the third thing about flipping the script. You have to change your story. You have to change your story. According to a study done by Emory University, the best predictor of a child's emotional well-being is not getting them into a great school. It's not giving them lots of hugs and kisses, although that that study uh, you probably have heard of before as well. It's not taking them on a pilgrimage to Disney World, and it's not watching Pixar films or anything like that. According to these researches at the Emory University, University, the number one indicator of emotional well-being is a child knowing their family history. A child knowing their family history. What went on with grandma and grandpa? Where did I come from? How did I get here? What is my ancestry? All the people who get on that website to try to find out where they've come from, that website's been booming quite a bit. And here's what I know for sure. All of us are born into someone else's story. Every one of you, born into someone else's story. You were born into her story. I was born into my mom and dad's story. My mom and dad were born into my grandparents' story. For better or for worse, all of us are born into someone else's story. And here's the good news. As children of God, when we get grafted into God's family, we get grafted into God's story. And this is huge. Scripture becomes our script. This, this, this book is our backstory, and our lives become the rest of the story. You are the fifth gospel. You are, you are Acts 29. You are Revelation 23. You are the only Bible some people will ever read. And the question is this, is your life a good translation? And here's how it works. You surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. You can do that right here, right now, at any time. You give the author and perfecter of your faith complete editorial control, writing your story. And he begins writing his story in you and through you. In Judaism, those who followed rabbi, uh, a rabbi for, had four responsibilities. Four responsibilities. First, they would memorize his words. That's how we get the Gospels. <laughs> The second responsibility was adopting the rabbi's unique interpretation of Scripture. So it was called the the rabbi's yoke. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) The third responsibility is imitating the rabbi's way of life, what he did. And we'll come back to that in a moment here. The fourth responsibility was discipling others the way you were discipled. You learned from from someone who taught you about God, and now you're going to turn around and 
teach someone else about God, discipling them, teaching them what it means to be a Christian and walk in God's ways. It's basically Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ. (laughs) But that third responsibility, imitating, it's one key to, to habit formation. There is a form of acting called method acting. It involves taking extreme measures to get into character. (laughs) It's a thing of legends in Hollywood, apparently. Dustin Hoffman went three days without sleep to prep for a scene in Marathon Man. Uh, Meryl Streep learned Polish and German for Sophie's Choice. Christian Bale lost 60 pounds to play an emaciated insomniac. (laughs) uh, Jamie Foxx glued his eyes shut to play Ray Charles. And Leonardo DiCaprio slept in an animal carcass while filming The Revenant. (laughs) Sometimes these actors can get kind of crazy with these things. But if you think about it, discipleship is method acting. Now, not in the way of acting like, okay, that's what I am here, and I'm not that way over here. Not talking about hypocrisy. But the process is taking our cues from Jesus. It is, we love like Jesus. We, we think like Jesus. We pray like Jesus. We treat people like Jesus did. We, we learn what He did and get into his, his personality, what He did. Do that long enough and you become like Jesus, which is the ultimate goal of discipleship, to be just like Jesus. Here's a simple theory of spiritual maturity. It's real simple. When you first encounter a verse of Scripture, it's nothing more than a theory. I remember this as I was reading uh, King James Version when I first uh, was figuring some, trying to figure some things out, and I wanted to learn a little, little bit more about stuff. And so some of those verses that came by, I was like, okay, well, prove it. <laughs> what, does that, what does that mean? And, and so they're kind of nothing more than the theory. And so you have to test that theory by putting it into practice. And so you read Scripture, you go, okay, this says this, and let's do this. Let's see what happens. Then that theory becomes your testimony. Maturity is testing God's Word. Maturity is that theory becoming our testimony, who we are. Remember that signet ring Pharaoh gave to Joseph? It gave him full authority. And we have the full backing of the king and his kingdom, the king of kings. We have to operate in that authority. We have to exercise that authority in our lives as well. This is our script. We are those method actors learning from Jesus, all that he did, walking in his steps and following him closely. The theory becomes reality, and when it does, it becomes our testimony. If God did it before, He can do it again. And anybody, anybody can follow Jesus, no matter what. So if you're not satisfied with your story, or if you do not find fulfillment in the way you have lived your life up to this point, you're not alone. A lot of people who are disappointed. We all write a story with the lives that we have built, But it's not necessarily the story God has for us. When we find discontentment or disappointment, dissatisfaction in our lives, it's usually due to being unhappy with the way our story is unfolding. And it begins with, well, I wish I could, I wish I would have. 
The good news, however, is that God wants to rewrite your story. God wants to flip the script of your life, give you a new name and a new story. When we tap into that God-given identity change, we discover a life changed for the better. Seeing God work in us, and it begins by allowing Him to take hold of that pen, take hold of that typewriter, take hold of that computer, and start typing in what He sees for our story. Allowing Him to do that. Giving Him permission to take care of what needs to be written next. And that's the process. That's, that's the point in time where you go, okay, you've got this, Lord. Here's the pencil. Start writing right away. And I'll follow whatever you want to write in my story. Because it's yours. <laughs> it's about total surrender to Christ and what He wants for you. Total surrender of your life to Him. The ups and downs, the bruises, the bumps, the good times, whatever it is. It's all given to Him. Whatever He wants to bring you through, you know that He will be there to bring you through it because you've given total reign to Him. and He's going to write your story. Just hold on tight. It's going to be a great story if you let Him write it. I'm going to pray, and we'll have a worship team prepared to lead us in a couple songs. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for this time together, and thank You, Lord, for opening our eyes to the fact that if we... If we're not very content with how our life story is going, then we need to flip the script. We need to let you take control and allow you to write the story in our lives. And Lord, there are a number of things that we can be responsible for. We can do our part, but Lord, we can only do so much. We need to, at some point, give over control to you. Because if we try to do it all on our own, we're just going to fail. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here today that has tried to do that and just doing the things on their own or trying to in their own power, Lord, I pray that you'd bring them to the point of realizing they can't do that any longer. They need to give it over to you. They need to surrender to you their life, allow you to take control, allow you to write that story from here on. So Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that needs to surrender in that way, Lord, that you would just make it very clear and that we would obey and spend time in prayer with you, allowing you to take hold of that, that pen and begin writing our story. So, Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have right now to be able to spend time in prayer, allow you to take uh, the different things in our lives and to bring it about for your story to be written in our lives. So, Lord, help us to uh, spend time in prayer and be obedient to what you have for us as you prompt us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.